Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm your host, Shelley Wilfong. On this podcast, I take a look into the Texas wine industry and give you all the news, education, and information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. I'm not exactly a Texas wine insider, but I'm an enthusiastic consumer. Thanks for joining me on This is Texas Wine. This is Episode 4. On today's episode, I'll review the latest news about winery tasting room closures, a Texas senator who's doing wine tasting fundraisers with a California winery, and a cruise for Texas wine lovers. Our main segment is one I'm really excited about. It's a list I've been compiling for a couple of years. I'll share my list of the 12 most important wines ever made in Texas. Finally, have you wondered how a winemaker decides when to harvest grapes? We'll take a closer look at bricks. Thank you for those of you that sent me positive feedback about our premiere episodes that launched two weeks ago. I'm so glad that you're listening and enjoying the podcast. Glad you're finding me on social media, too. I'm having fun posting some original Texas wine content, particularly on Instagram. Find me at Texas Wine Pod on the socials. On to the Texas wine news. The Texas wine industry is certainly experiencing whiplash. On Friday, June 26th at noon, an executive order closed bars and wineries throughout the state, and wineries were left wondering what to do. Since they get over 50% of their revenue from alcohol, they're lumped in with bars, although they certainly don't look much like bars to me. Wineries had very little time to prepare for this sudden development, and there was a lot of confusion on the first day or two. But within 48 hours, it was clear that wineries did indeed need to shut down their tasting rooms, so it was back to the curbside and to-go model. TWIGA, the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association, responded by asking members and the public at large to contact the governor's office as well as state legislators. An email went out to TWIGA distribution lists and was also shared on social media. There was some key messaging that I can share with you now. The points that TWIGA was trying to get across were the following. First, nearly 95% of all Texas wine is sold through tasting room visits, and the chance to learn about Texas agriculture and taste Texas wine is often through the families that make them, and this happens in the tasting room. Number two, Texas tasting rooms were closed for two months during the general shutdown, and additional closures means insufficient funds for purchasing grapes this year. This is a trickle-down effect that will impact these families. Number three, our wineries are part of Texas's agriculture, and many of these folks are farmers, and shutting down any one part of the supply chain leads to unemployment for farmers, our servers and salespeople, and the people who work in manufacturing segments of our business. And finally, we believe it is wrong and inconsistent that movie theaters, bowling alleys, amusement parks, golf courses, and other entertainment venues can continue to entertain patrons and sell alcoholic beverages, but our winery tasting rooms have been unjustly singled out as a danger in the community. Then on July 1st, the Agriculture Commissioner, Sid Miller, sent a letter to the governor that uses those Twigga talking points and respectfully asked him to support the Texas wine industry and to allow tasting rooms to open immediately. At the time of this recording, no word yet from the governor's office. I've just received word that the State Fair of Texas is canceled because of the global pandemic and Texas's cases still rising. This is another crushing loss for Texas wines since the past few years have really provided some great exposure for Texas wines at the State Fair. The State Fair Wine Garden has welcomed different wineries each day, 
Wineries were able to showcase their featured wines and have representatives on site to serve wines and to answer questions. The second way the Texas wines were featured was through the Go Texan Blue Ribbon Wine Selection Program. Twelve Blue Ribbon wines were selected blindly by a panel from a pool of entries. The State Fair Wine Garden featured these ribbon-winning wines through the three-week run of the fair. It's unclear if those wines had been selected for this year. The economic impact of the State Fair is approximately $400 to $500 million to the economy, according to a 2017 study. The 2019 Houston Rodeo, which was shut down early in 2020 because of the coronavirus, resulted in a $391 million economic impact. Although the Houston Rodeo has a longer history of promoting Texas wines, I had high hopes for the State Fair this year. I felt like the fair was making good progress in promoting Texas wine, and the news of the cancellation is not surprising, but it's still disappointing. On the Texas Hill Country Winery's Happy Hour call on Thursday, June 25th, I listened as four Texas wineries talked about their new releases that are coming up. It was fun to hear about the wide variety of wines from Bending Branch, Farmhouse, Texas Heritage, and Longhorn Cellars. Ironically, Jennifer McGinnis Fidel shared that they were perhaps the first winery to shut down and they might be the last to reopen, but they had plans to reopen the following day. But then they didn't because of the governor's order that wineries had to shut down. But there was one moment during that Facebook Live conversation that stopped me in my tracks, and later I went back and rewatched it so I could write down the exact quote and share it on social media. Jen from Bending Branch asked Deanna Dickey from Longhorn Cellars how her winery had managed during COVID and any lessons that she had learned. And here's what Deanna said. I honestly didn't know how we would keep our doors open, but then the number of online orders we had just in the two months of business closure of COVID surpassed what we did in the first two years we were open. For that, we are eternally grateful. It warmed my heart tremendously. And the number of times people drove in just to pick up some wine to go, unbelievable. I was so surprised. It was an everyday occurrence. For two months, it was just me here fulfilling orders. I can't tell you how it really was not only heartwarming, but also everyone was concerned about our staff. Everyone asked about them. We had so many new customers. I signed up more wine clubs from people picking up to-go orders. I was extremely pleased with the support that everyone had for our winery. That's the end of the quote. It was really just moving, and Susan Johnson from Texas Heritage agreed, and she also had a lovely quote. She said, It soothed the soul to see that people are still loving and caring and want you to succeed and will help you succeed when they see that you need help. We've experienced that from wine club members making masks to all of our tasting room team that worked in the vineyard. Everyone was pitching in to do whatever they could to sustain everybody else. It was a true sense of teamwork not just from the tasting room team, but the wine club team members and strangers who just wanted to help. It's very heartwarming. It makes you believe in spite of everything that's going on. It makes you believe that we're all going to be okay. That's the end of her quote. You can view that video on the Bending Branch Facebook page. It was filmed on June 25th. Well, folks, we're back in that place now where wineries need our help again. They are only operating curbside or to go. So they're losing out on all their tasting room sales and they need they need us to visit and to support them. I did see a comment recently on the Texas Wine Lover Facebook page. Someone asked a winery, is your wine club accepting new wine club members? 
Now, I don't want to speak for every winery, but I'm fairly confident that the answer to this question for most wine clubs is yes. I don't know of too many wineries in Texas that have 100% full wine clubs. So if you're listening and if you are considering joining a Texas wine club, I would encourage you to go ahead and place the call or inquire online because I'm pretty sure most any wine club will find a place for you. Most any winery is going to welcome you with open arms. Congratulations to Fall Creek Vineyards and Pedernales Cellars for their mention in Decanter's article on 4th of July wines beyond California. The 2016 Fall Creek Exterra Salt Lick Vineyards Tempranillo was mentioned and came in at 93 points. It was described as dark and broad-shouldered, with a rich, supple, smooth, and dense palate. The 2016 Pedernales Cellars Tempranillo from the Texas High Plains was also mentioned and received 90 points. The tasting note states, For a more Spanish feel, the blend includes a little Graciano, a traditional device to enhance freshness and add a distinct savory note, bright, spicy, and juicy. Both wines were tasted and scored by British Master of Wine Sarah Jane Evans, who I had the privilege to sit next to at the Texas Wine Seminar at the 2018 Texam Sommelier Conference. Sarah Jane was visiting Texas for the first time, and she was anxious to try Texas wine. We're so glad she found some she liked. And Sarah Jane definitely knows her Tempranillo. She is a Spanish wine expert, and she actually wrote the book, the 2018 book, The Wines of Northern Spain. Northern Spain includes the areas of Rioja and Ribera del Duero, where vast amounts of Tempranillo are grown and produced. Texas wineries, if you're interested in having your wines poured at Ted Cruz fundraising events, you might want to call his Senate office and offer. Remind him that Texas grows grapes and makes wine too. Why? Because he's been having fundraising events and pouring California wines. The past few weeks, he's had several fundraising events with Michael Herson, a lobbyist at the American Defense International. And Michael Herson is also supplying the wine from Herson Family Vineyards in California. The wines to be sampled include Access Merlot and Influence Chardonnay. Michael claims to be a level one master sommelier. I think he must mean that he's taken the level one introductory sommelier course from the Court of Master Sommeliers because there's not actually a level one master sommelier title and says that he will answer any and all wine questions from glass and bottle shape to the aging process. And Senator Cruz will be prepared to discuss policy, current events, and also discuss great wine questions. And finally, who wants to go on a Texas wine river cruise? Texas on the Rhone is being hosted by Fall Creek, Parasos, Tornalox, and Wedding Oak Winery. It's a seven-night cruise on Ama Waterways that departs Avignon, France, and arrives in Lyon seven days later. This is happening in November 2021. AMA is a very well-regarded luxury river cruise line that operates throughout the world. Apparently, Blake and Karen DeBerry from Tornalox took an AMA river cruise recently and thought it would be great fun to do with some of their wine club members and friends. So they put together several other Texas Hill Country wineries to act as hosts, and they're all offering this trip to members of their wine club and other interested parties. The stops along the Rhone look so fun, and they include a lot of wine-centric activities, 
like tasting in Chateauneuf de Pop, an Hermitage, wine tasting, a Beaujolais excursion, and more. There are also winemaker dinners and Texas wine seminars with the other Texas wine hosts. You can extend your trip in Paris or Barcelona. Cruise pricing starts at $33.99 per person, and Derek Shannon is the exclusive booking agent for this trip. I'll provide his contact information in the show notes. It's also on the podcast's Facebook page. If you contact him, please say you heard it on the Texas Wine Podcast. Today, I would like to share with you a dozen bottles of wine that have moved the Texas wine industry forward. The bottles I've selected were revolutionary for their time. They were recognized and celebrated for one reason or another, and it brought attention to Texas, and it made people sit up and take notice of our state and of Texas wine. Now, notice I didn't say that these are the best wines ever made in Texas. I have no idea what most of them taste like. I've only had a few of them, at least in the vintage that I'm going to talk about. What's important is just that they were made. They were tasted and they were noticed. They got some attention from someone, and the headlines were generated, the word of mouth started spreading, and the rest, as they say, is history. One caveat. Most of the following is not my primary research. Since there's no one definitive guide to Texas wine history, I've pulled bits and pieces of stories and accounts from several different sources. I've done my best to be true to the history and to get clarification where something wasn't clear. Many thanks to Jim Johnson from Alamosa Cellars, Bill Four and Dr. Bob Young at Bending Branch, Cassandra McPherson from McPherson Cellars, and Jeff Cope from Texas Wine Lover for helping me with tracking down details on these bottles over the past few weeks. And hats off to the wine writers that have been covering the Texas wine scene since before I was paying attention. Rebecca Murphy, Jessica Dufuy, Russ Kane, Tina Dans, Terry Thompson-Anderson, Kim Pierce, and others. Cheers to you. We begin in 1986. The place was the San Francisco International Wine Competition. The first two wines on my list were both awarded gold medals in the 1986 San Francisco International Wine Awards. Remember that at this time, many Californians and wine connoisseurs who had heard about Texas wines called them disparaging names, like Chateau Bubba or Cactus Blanc. But after the events of 1986, wine historian Leon Adams was quoted as saying, There's no question the High South Plains is a viticulture miracle. No one realized this area could produce world-class wines. It is an amazing story. Wine number one is the 1983 Pheasant Ridge Cabernet Sauvignon. This was the first gold medal awarded a Texas red wine in a California wine competition. Texas Monthly reported on the win and called Pheasant Ridge a tiny winery, a savvy backyard operation on a dirt road outside New Deal. In fact, Pheasant Ridge is the seventh oldest winery in Texas, and their first wines were released in 1983 from vineyards that had been planted in 1978 by the Cox family. At that time, it was the largest all-vinifera vineyard in Texas. The wine reviewer Robert Parker first recognized Texas wines shortly thereafter in 1988, when he gave Pheasant Ridge, the 1983 Cabernet, in fact, as well as the non-vintage Proprietor's Reserve, 
a score of 89. The second wine is the 1984 Llano Estacado Chardonnay. It won a rare double gold medal in the 1986 San Francisco competition. The double gold added instant credibility, and Yano described it as the magic that was happening out on the high plains of Texas. The winemaker was Kim McPherson, who had been winemaker there since 1979. According to the Texas Wine Lover website, the 1984 Yano Estacado Chardonnay was made with grapes from the Leftwich Slaughter Vineyards. The vineyard is commonly referred to as Slaughter Leftwich, but the bottle displayed at Llano Estacado states that, at least at the time, it was the Leftwich Slaughter Vineyards. Wine number three is the Messina Hoff 1990 Johannesburg Riesling Texas Late Harvest Angel. It was the first Texas wine to earn the score of 90 in Wine Spectator. It is still the highest-rated Texas wine in Wine Spectator. Wine Spectator only has 309 Texas wines rated, and they've not been particularly kind to the Texas wines that they have rated in the past. This score was issued on February 29, 1992. The tasting note states, Sweet and silky with lovely apricot, pear, and floral aromas and flavors, turning rich and honeyed on the long finish. Has a solid frame for the delicate flavors to hang on. Well made, showing all the signs of developing with cellaring. Drink now through 1994. The release price, $15. Wine number four is the 1997 Fall Creek Sauvignon Blanc. It was the first Texas wine to be named a Best Buy by Wine Spectator. In the book, The History of Texas Wine, From Spanish Roots to Rising Star, Authors Catherine and Neil Crane write, In 1998, Fall Creek Winery's 1997 Sauvignon Blanc was the first Texas wine to be named a Best Buy by Wine Spectator. In the late 90s, Wine Spectator was a kingmaker. If the Spectator recommended a wine, it was sure to sell out, and the next year you could get more for it. Fall Creek's appearance in The Spectator demonstrated that Texas wines could play on an international level, and we have Ed and Susan Aller to thank for that and all of their other contributions to the Texas wine industry. So, you'll notice that my first four choices were all about awards and scores. Those four accomplishments certainly did help get Texas some national recognition. Every little bit helps for an emerging wine region. Most of the rest of my selections, though, focus much more on innovations and experiments by creative Texans that have propelled our industry forward. Choice number five, the 1998 McPherson Sangiovese. This was the initial vintage of this wine, made from the first Sangiovese planted in the state. Doc McPherson was one of the state's prime grape growers and was the first in Texas to plant Sangiovese at his home vineyard, Sagmore Vineyards. Sagmore was Doc's experimental vineyards that was planted around 1968, and the Sangiovese was planted in 1985. Doc and his fellow professor at Texas Tech, they went on to found Llano Estacado, the first post-prohibition winery in Texas, named the vineyard Sagmore because the trellis supports sagged heavily under the weight of the grapes. Over the years, this vineyard block has become one of the most consistent yielding blocks of quality Sangiovese in Texas. 
I should note that the McPherson wine actually hit the market the same year as another Texas winery's single varietal Sangiovese. Alamosa Cellars near San Saba in the Texas Hill Country had planted Sangiovese in 1996 and also brought its single varietal Sangiovese to market in 1998. The McPherson Sangiovese had been going into the Toscana Red blends at Caprock, where Kim McPherson was winemaker. Then in 1998, it was made as a single varietal wine under the newly developed McPherson label. Now Sangiovese is the fifth most planted red variety in Texas. The Sangiovese planted both by Doc McPherson and by Alamosa Cellars, paves the way for Dukeman and other producers that are betting on Italian varieties in Texas. I've just introduced Alamosa Cellars, and they hold the number six spot on my list. Number six is the 1999 Alamosa Cellars Tempranillo. Jim and Karen Johnson planted the Hill Country's first Tempranillo vines in 1998, and they were the first to bottle Tempranillo commercially in the state. I exchanged emails with Jim Johnson. He writes, Our Tempranillo was planted in 98, the first year the vine was available from the California nurseries. Our vines were productive in first and second leaf, and we produced 63 cases of wine from second leaf vines in 99, the first commercial Tempranillo produced in Texas. We called our wine El Wapo, thinking a proprietary name was needed since almost nobody in the general wine-consuming public had any idea what grapes were used to make Rioja and Ribera del Duero wines. The blend was 92% Tempranillo, 5% Cabernet Sauvignon, and 3% Garnacha, and the label featured a Texas horned lizard. I currently have only four bottles left of that wine, and I assume that is the total world supply. We last tried it in 2014, shortly before we closed our tasting room and shut down the winery, and it was holding on quite nicely. Have not had occasion since to open one, but I suspect it is still drinking well. Only one way to know. Jim goes on to say that Les Constable up in Wise County at Brushy Creek Winery planted the same year using the same nursery source. He produced a Tempranillo from the 2000 vintage. That was his first and the second in Texas. Dan Gatlin had planted Tempranillo at Newsom's Vineyard in the High Plains a few years earlier than theirs at Alamosa. And Dan made a number of experimental small lots from those vines that predated Alamosa's, but they didn't come to market. Thank you, Jim, for this great history lesson. Wine number seven, the 2003 Hack Jacques Madeira, released in 2006. It was the first and only to date Madeira to be produced in the United States and will forever be the only allowed to be called Madeira, because this label was approved just mere days before the 2006 agreement went into effect between the U.S. government and the EU that banned the use of the titles Port, Sherry, Madeira, and other protected place names. 
Raymond Hack attended a wine symposium in 2004, and a master of wine, D.C. Flint, noted that the Hack port reminded him of a classic Madeira. And so Raymond set off to make a Texas Madeira, and uh, the results ended up being just astounding. He actually went to Madeira, an island off the coast of Portugal, to see how to make it. And then he came home, and he actually built an authentic estufa, or a temperature-controlled cellar, which is the way that Madeira is made. He released this first Madeira to the public on November the 5th, 2006, and he had a tremendous success on his hands. He entered it into a blind tasting of world-class Madeira, and he beat out a significant challenger, and he came within one point of besting a 59-year-old Uh, wine that had received 93 points by the wine spectator. So it was a tremendous showing, proving that Texas could indeed produce world-class wines. So he became known for Texas Madeira, and today the Hack Madeira is produced from Hack's signature Blanc de Bois grapes, grown there locally at Hack Vineyard. And so they're grandfathered into the use of the word Madeira. No one else can use that now. But the uniqueness and the gumption of Raymond Hack is the reason why I included them on my list. Number eight is a twofer, and it's not exactly the wine that's so critical in this selection. It's the delivery system. Number eight is the Dukeman Vermentino and Montepulciano in a keg. This became available at Whole Foods locations in Dallas and later around the state in 2010. Dukeman was the first Texas winery to keg wines for serving on tap. At the time, Devin Brogley was Whole Foods specialty coordinator for the Southwest region. Now he is a master sommelier and currently the global beverage buyer for Whole Foods. This innovative way of selling wine not only allows wine to be kept fresh for longer, it also allows people to be able to try just to taste. So what better way is there to convince people to try a full glass of Texas wine than just to be able to offer them a taste from the tap? Selection number nine is the 2010 Bending Branch Cabernet Sauvignon from Newsom Vineyards. This was the first Texas Cabernet Sauvignon to win double gold in the San Francisco International Wine Competition. It was awarded in 2013. While the wine's award is certainly a great accomplishment, what makes it even more noteworthy is the trajectory that it set for Bending Branch. This 2010 Cabernet was the first bending branch wine to utilize cryomaceration. That's a process in which the destemmed grapes are frozen for a period of time, and that process changes the grape's cellular structure. When the grapes are defrosted, fermentation can extract about 50% more tannin, flavor, and pigment than a conventional fermentation without cryomaceration. So in the 2010 Cabernet, about 50% of the grapes went through this process. The first wine that 100% of the grapes went through cryomaceration was the 2011 Estate Tanat, which went on to win all kinds of awards, including top honors at the Houston Rodeo. But Bending Branch didn't stop there with innovative technology. In June 2014, Bending Branch founder Dr. Bob Young invested in the flash detente machine, one of only a few in the U.S. and the only one in Texas. The machine provides another way to enhance fermentation. It heats the grapes quickly to high temperatures. 
without getting into the science of it, it results ultimately in better color, structure, extraction, and removes some unwanted green flavors. I included the 2010 Bending Branch Cabernet Sauvignon on the list because the success of that wine led to additional investments in technology. Technology has been a defining part of Bending Branch's philosophy, and other wineries have benefited from their innovative approaches too. Wine number 10 is the 2015 launch of the Locations brand TX by Napa Valley winemaker Dave Finney and Texas's own Kim McPherson. You've heard the name Dave Finney, creator of Orin Swift and the Prisoner labels. This wine was one of the first nationally distributed Texas wines. You've probably seen the bottles white oval labels with just a letter or two on the front, in this case, TX. The wines are founded on the principle of making the best possible wine from a given country or location. Currently, they've got red wines from France, Italy, Oregon, Spain, California, Washington, and in 2015, they added Texas. That's basically why it's important. It put Texas wine into into distribution with wine from California, Washington, and Oregon. Now, in the first year, there wasn't much wine made, only around 600 cases, and we don't know exactly how far that wine went. But surely it got further than a lot of Texas wine goes. At least the first year it was offered, it was 88% fruit from the Texas High Plains and 12% California fruit, and it was also non-vintage, meaning that not all of the grapes were harvested in the same year. In an article in Texas Monthly by Jessica Dufuy, Kim McPherson was quoted as saying, This is the first step in getting Texas more recognition as a great wine-producing region. And he went on to say, Getting national distribution helps solidify that we're bona fide as a serious wine region. I'm getting tired of saying it when I'm traveling to other parts of the country. But if my wines are found in other states, that just helps. Locations brand was sold to Gallo in 2018, but Dave Finney continues to make the wine. It was reported that there are about 90,000 cases total being made across the brands. Wine number 11 is the 2017 Nectar Nero Texas Rosé from 4R Ranch Vineyards and Winery. This is near Munster, north of DFW. This wine earned one of only nine sweepstakes medals at the San Francisco Chronicles Wine Competition. A first sweepstakes medal for a Texas wine. This huge wine competition awarded only nine sweepstakes medals out of 6,800 entrants. This is a dessert wine, and it was entered into the specialty wine category. Bingham and Reddy Vineyards grew the Moscato Narrow grapes in the Texas High Plains. 456 cases were produced, and this was awarded in 2019. Wine judge Mike Dunn described the Nectar Nero this way a truly original dessert wine for its distinctive floral aroma, smooth texture, lush fruit, and seamless integration of sugar and acid. The hummingbird of the label speaks for all of us as we flock to this feeder. Winemaker Willem Johnson had this to say, We are honored to stand along our peers in California and New York. It is exciting to see Texas wines making an appearance on the national stage as well as demonstrating, on a local level, the quality of wines coming from our winery's lesser-known Texoma region of North Texas. We must recognize the growers in the Texas Panhandle who produced the fruit from which this wine was made, Bingham Family Vineyards and Reddy Vineyards. 
This really speaks to the ascending quality of the Texas wine industry as a whole. Wine number 12 was Sway Rosé by Yes We Can Wine. This was the first 100% Texas-grown canned rosé. It was first released in 2017 by Chris Brundrett of William Chris Vineyards and Andrew Sides of Lost Jaw Cellars. It also ended up being the first-ever gold medal for a canned wine in the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. Upon release, it was sold in three packs of 250-milliliter cans. It was 32% Morved, 32% Carignan, 15% Muscat, 10% Viognier, and 11% Malvasia Bianca, and 12.3% alcohol by volume. I included this on the list because it really helped cement Texas's rights as a premier rosé producer and continued Texas's reputation as an innovator when it comes to packaging. So those dozen wines are my selections as the most important bottles that moved the needle on Texas wines. I'm in awe of these Texas wine leaders who were curious and innovative in the vineyard, in the winery, and on the production line. What do you think of my choices? What else should have been included? My social media handle is at Texas Wine Pod, so let me hear from you. And like I said, I can't guarantee that these were the most delicious choices because I haven't had most of them. But it just so happens that I have one of these choices here with me now. And if you don't mind, I think I'm going to try it out. Just a quick break with a request that you help the podcast audience to grow by sharing this show with a friend. There are over 1.25 million podcasts in existence, so finding an audience is a real challenge. I know just the audience I'm looking for, people with an interest in Texas wine. Your interest may range from pure unbridled passion to mere curiosity, but I think this podcast offers something for everyone on that spectrum. If you could please help me spread the word by sharing the show by word of mouth or on social media. If you manage a wine club or a mailing list, I'd love to be included in your next mailing, either on paper or electronically. The only thing I'm selling is education, so I'd love your help getting the word out to as many people as possible. In our education segment, I want to talk today about harvest. Harvest has started in the Hill Country. That means that wineries are starting to pick the grapes and starting the process to turn them into wine. And how do you tell that it's time to pick? On the last episode, we talked about veraison. That's the process that grapes go through when their color changes. They soften, their sugars developed, and they lose acidity. After a certain period of time, and vineyard managers and winemakers usually know just how long this time frame is for a particular vineyard, maybe 30 to 60 days, whoever's responsible for the vineyard is going to start looking for clues that harvest is nearing. I watched a great video this week that I'm going to link to in the show notes, so I encourage you to go check it out. It's on the Fall Creek Vineyards Facebook page, and it shows Sergio Quadra, the director of winemaking, walking through the vineyard in 2017 discussing his plans for picking. He's talking about how the taste of the grapes changes from week to week as the grapes start out tasting kind of like unripe watermelon and they change to tasting like plum and then like fig as the flavors develop. And he says that the flavor development is very fast in Texas, much faster than in other regions. So I encourage you to check out that that video so you can see it for yourself. But I think for winemakers, it's part observation and it's part science. And one word that you may have heard is BRICS, B-R-I-X, and that's what I want to mention today. 
Bricks is a measurement of the sugar content of the grapes, and it indicates the degree of the grape's ripeness. Most wine grapes are harvested between 21 and 25 bricks, and grapes that are left to hang and ripen longer are going to develop higher sugars and will therefore have higher bricks. The longer hanging grapes are also going to make a higher alcohol wine. So higher bricks equals a higher alcohol wine. Of course, there are some ways to manipulate this in the winery, but that's true in the purest sense. So how do you measure bricks? Well, one way in the vineyard is with a device called a refractometer, where they can measure, based on a single grape, what sections are ripening. So it isn't anything fancy, but the next time you visit a vineyard, ask if there's one and you can see for yourself how it works. You'll also see in the video, Sergio is taking a section of grapes back to the winery, and I'm sure they're going to evaluate those in a lab. You can use some more sophisticated equipment to measure bricks back in the winery. So he was probably looking for grapes from various sections of the vineyard, some from uh, different sides of each grapevine and from different sections of the vineyard so that he gets a good cross-section. You're also going to want to measure your pH, and he's also tasting for overall development of the grapes, sugars, acids, and tannins. And the winemaker's tasting the skins and the seeds. If, if they still taste green and tannic, he's probably going to want to leave them on the vine a little bit longer. And the, the winemaker is also watching the weather. If there's rain coming or, God forbid, hail, you may have to adjust your harvest schedule. I noticed that next week down in the hill country, one day it's going to be 105. So if you're worried about your grapes getting too much sun, that you may make a, a decision to pick accordingly. As far as rain goes, plumping up grapes full of water just before harvest is not a good idea because the water is going to dilute the flavors of the grape. So rain at harvest time is generally frowned upon, unless, of course, you're a grower that's getting paid by the ton. The late Andre Telechev is often called the Dean of American Winemakers. And he once said that in the weeks before harvest, every winemaker should be walking the fields, tasting grapes. He said that's where the wine is made. And there's another old saying, the best fertilizer for the vineyard is the winemaker's footsteps. So I hope you'll take a look at that video that I'll post from Fall Creek Vineyards showing Sergio walking through the vineyard from the 2017 harvest. It'll get you into the frame of mind of a winemaker at this critical time of the year. You may have heard I just popped the top on a can of Sway Rosé, which is the number 12 wine on my list. This is a 375 milliliter can of wine, which is basically half a bottle. So it's two glasses of wine. I would actually prefer a smaller can because it stays cold while I'm drinking it. But this one fits in my koozie, which is nice too. Yes, We Can Wine also makes a canned Sauve Blanc. I got this at Whole Foods. They also have the Sauve Blanc. It was $6. So $6 for two glasses of wine is not bad. The vineyard source isn't listed on this rosé, but it does say that it's from the Texas High Plains. This is a tasty canned rosé. It's dry, fruity, portable, and uh, just a lovely canned wine to quench my thirst. I recommend it. Check it out. I've had it in my 
recording studio, otherwise known as my closet, in a cold cooler. So I was just waiting till the end of recording to be able to open it. So cheers, guys. I noticed on the Yes We Can website, they've got 12 and 24 can party packs available. And free shipping is included with the code Yes We Can Wine. Those are the 187 milliliter can sizes. So have fun with that this summer. Um, I want to say thank you to Texas Wine Lover website and Jeff Cope for helping spread the word about this podcast. Remember to visit TXWineLover.com whenever you have a question about a Texas winery or Texas vineyard. Not only can you get information on Texas wineries, but the website is also full of travel reports, winemaker interviews, and interesting blog posts from incredibly talented writers. Thanks, Texas Wine Lover. And just a few reminders, please go to the website, which is www.thisistexaswine.com for full show notes for this episode. I spend a lot of time on those, so go check out all the links to everything I talk about and more. While you're there, subscribe to our very occasional newsletter. And as a thank you, I'll send you my document that includes the top 10 Texas wine experiences that I've had during my shelter in place. Again, you can do that at www.thisistexaswine.com and click newsletter sign up. Please subscribe to this podcast and your podcast app so that you won't miss our next episode, which will be out in two weeks. The website also tells you how to connect with me on social media. I'm at Texas Wine Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm most active on Instagram and have been having fun over there posting some original Texas wine content. Thank you for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. I'll be back in two weeks. Cheers, y'all. Cheers.